Mid-market sized businesses are where the true economic action in business really is. They are nimble and agile. They're factories of growth, they lead in innovation, and they're early adopters of tech. These enterprises need the right tools, support and environment to flourish. But sadly, they're often overlooked and undervalued. Not here though. This is the Mid-Market Matters podcast, and I'm your host, Craig West. We'll explore pain points, growth strategies, and how to find the competitive edge. Welcome to SME Radio. In this episode of Mid-Market Matters, I'm joined by James Slattery from Slattery Auctions and Valuations. And James's business has grown over the years, and uh, it's now quite well known and regarded around the country. So, um, James, thanks for joining us, firstly. Yeah, no worries. It's uh, great to catch up with you again, Craig. So, mate, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you ended up uh, in the business and what you do. Yeah, no no problems. It's an interesting question. I get it asked a lot, you know, how did you end up there? And my answer usually goes, well, I don't know whether I chose it or whether I was programmed for it. I'm the youngest of six kids. <laughs> and, uh, and as I was growing up, my father, who started the business, he, uh, he always said, oh, you'd be a good auctioneer. You'd be a good auctioneer. You'd be a good auctioneer. So when the time came, they said, what do you want to do? <clears throat> Pardon me. I said, oh, I suppose I'll be an, an auctioneer. And that's how it sort of all started. Um, so as far as a career choice, that's why I'm sort of still sitting on the fence. I don't know whether it was me or whether it was the programming. <laughs> so you, it's a family business. Obviously, you've got some brothers involved as well. Tell us about that. How does that work? Yeah, it's a it's sort of a very intertwined um, history, the Slattery Auctions story, um, and it's you know as I mentioned, there's the the six children involved, um, <clears throat> me being the youngest, and then my uh, brothers who are number five and four in the family. So as far as the you know it's second generation now, you know, at the outset you'd think that it'd probably be the oldest three kids that had maybe take over the business or the oldest boy or the oldest girl, someone along those lines. But in actual fact, it's the youngest three with uh, myself being the first one to join. So um, if you've got the time, I'll take you through a little bit of the of the intertwined story. Um, but I, I joined the business full time in 2004. And, um, and I, I worked uh, very closely with my father, Pat, and, um, and it was almost one where, you know, it was, it was um, just auctions out of Newcastle at the time. Uh, my mm-hmm. brother was flying, um, was flying aircraft, was looking to become a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in the Army. Right. My dad had this uh, had this sort of fascination with aviation, so he started up a helicopter charter business on the side of the auction. So our current auction site in Hexham has a registered heliport. And my brother left the military, and he was training to be a helicopter pilot. And we had a helicopter business, so he came in to run the the aviation arm of of our business and really get his flying hours up. And so right at that time, I went on secondment to Sydney to work for an insolvency firm for um, 12 months. And then I came back to Newcastle uh, to join the, to rejoin the business. And basically, we had a phone call, which was out of the blue, to say um, I've had a, had a disagreement with my business partner. Do you want to buy my, my side of the business? And with my tenure ending in, in insolvency, I just run a whole number of trade-on businesses and the like. 
And so I said to Dad, oh, well, I can, um, I can go down and do this for two years. That was in 2008, and I haven't left Melbourne since. <laughs> but we, we sat down as I was rejoining uh, in Hexham. Um, Paddy soon learnt that aviation, you've really got to really love it. Um, otherwise, uh, otherwise, it's pretty expensive, and it's, um, it's, yes. it's a lifestyle business and not one that you necessarily get to buy the farm and do other things on it. So he um, he had sort of slotted into my old role at Hexham. So Dad, Patty, and I, we had a coffee together to um, probably two months out of me rejoining to say, well, you know, this is, uh, this is what's going on. What issues do we think we're going to face? Patty's number four as far as the ranking of the age of the children. And, um, and he, was, uh, he was still learning the role. And um, so we spoke about, you know, issues of age, responsibilities, um, those sorts of things. So try to almost yeah. preempt any issues that came up. Um, and we sort of got through that all right. And, you know, I was in Melbourne, so it didn't really matter. Um, my other brother, uh, Tim, he was working for Freehills at the time. And he uh, he wanted to join the diplomatic corps. And um, so he was going down that path. And uh, I didn't know this, but you get selected onto a list. Uh, and my understanding is you've got a time frame on that list. If you don't get selected from that, you have to reapply. So Tim, um, it, it sort of expires every 12 months and it's a set date. He applied, got accepted onto the list, but he was only on the list for three months before he had to reapply. So he reapplied again. And during that time, we, um, we were trying to sink our hooks into him. He's, uh, he's a very good operator and, uh, and he had a really strong background um, in the, obviously with a legal mind as well as commercially. While he was um, going through union things, he was actually helping dad sell a bunch of helicopters for the defense force into Italy. Tim went on exchange to Italy and he speaks fluent Italian. Yeah. So he, he essentially helped um, broker this deal for this uh, Italian syndicate to come out and buy nine defense helicopters. Um, <laughs> all part-time whilst at uni. So he, um, he, he's worked on some pretty big transactions from, uh, from an early age. Anyway, so we, uh, we had a few things and he was doing some part-time work for the business as, um, as he was going through um, that transition phase from Freehills into the diplomatic corps. So we strategically gave him a lot of the interesting and fun, uh, fun jobs. We had to repossess a helicopter out of Victoria and we were flying it back. You know, one of the, one of the benefits of having your own helipad is that you get to um, uh, store helicopters at a, at a lower rate. So yep. we, um, we had our chief pilot at the time. He was um, geared up to come and transfer this helicopter. And as part of you know risk mitigation and safety, we sent my brother down with him. So they flew the helicopter from one of the Melbourne uh, airports all the way up the coast, uh, landed and stored it at our, at our helipad for three months in Newcastle. And that was kind of the final nail in his coffin to join the business. And that all sort of happened by roughly 2010. Um, so this is a bit long-winded, so if it's a little bit boring, you can tell me to, um, you can tell me to skip or fast-forward, whatever you like. No, no, it's interesting just to see how the business came together. Yeah. Well, um, I, I find it interesting, but, uh, you know, you always tend to find your own stories more interesting than uh, than not, and, and you can have someone sitting across the table with glazed eyes looking at you, going, "Mate, come on, hurry up." Um, so where are you at now? That was two thousand and ten, sort of ten years on. What does the business look like now? 
Yeah, so 2010, the three of us were in the business. We were uh, Melbourne and Newcastle. And then um, we we all started to sort of find our feet. Um, we had um, our own sort of geographical splits and then a natural skill set split between the three of us. Paddy very much operational focus. Tim with, uh, with the strong uh, legal and sort of commercial background. And then um, I never really have found a good way to describe myself in that. So I just uh, always just say the younger brother tagging along on their coattails. Um, and so 2012 came about and we were starting to sort of get a little bit more confident in our abilities and winning some more work and doing those things. And we wanted to open up in Sydney because we were saying, you know, Sydney, the biggest city in the country. We want to, um, biggest market being New South Wales. We want to we feel like we should do it. And dad, mum and dad, they sort of went, well, it's a very different risk profile to what we want. Why don't um, you guys buy the business? And we said, right. well, that's, that suits. And so this is where the history of Slattery and the succession plan really, really started to kick in. You know, you've got the founding um, directors, the second generation, different risk profiles, and then how do you go about achieving it? The the thing that made this a little bit more complex was you've got half the children involved, the other half um, not involved. Then the factor which a lot of people seem to ignore is everybody's partner that then fits in that. So you've got, you know, six big personalities all with their own opinions plus their partners. So it, um, it does get a little bit challenging at, um, at times, but we sat down originally with mum and dad and said, um, uh, would you guys be happy for us to do it? Um, and there was some sort of family politics. My grandmother had just died and mum, mum had, um, she was sort of, a silent director in the business so we had to update mum on everything that was happening as well as um getting dad um dad you know just in line with it shouldn't just be us doing the deal and he was actually very much an advocate of saying uh it needs to be the rest of the kids as well as their partners and this is how we should do it so he was a big driving force in how the succession plan should happen right. and so um that stage one was yep we're all on board here we want to do this um, stage two was then booking in a, uh, a a big room in Chinatown in Sydney that would accommodate for um, 15 people as well as the grandkids. Yeah. Um, and uh, we sat down to lunch and that was where we spoke about everything. You know, it was all on the table, um, you know, buying the business, the structure of the purchase deal, how it would work, could others buy shares, um, what happens with uh, inheritance, you know, inevitably um, our parents will pass away, that's a, that's a fact. Um, and so rather than shy away from that, it was almost like having the divorce papers drafted up before, um, before the divorce so that everyone knows what, what, yeah. what's going to happen and there's no, no, um, there's no issues. Um, so that all, um, that all happened, we spoke about you know, the different subjects and um, and resolved. We also then had a second meeting um, six months later. So back to Chinatown, uh, into the Yamcha restaurant to then um, go, all right, well, everyone's had time. Any issues need to be um, spoken about. Um, so we just wrapped it up again. And then um, that was essentially how the transaction happened. 
got rid of all the family politics all in the in the one element. I mean, the six children were all very close, um, so it wasn't it wasn't a major drama or anything. It was more just making sure that everyone had their concerns aired and resolved, and we were able to move on. It's um, great. It sounds like the succession plans worked out pretty well. Yeah, I, it, it has. Um, there's not been any issues in saying that. Mum and Dad are both very healthy and very much still part of everyone's lives. So, you know, the real test is when that no longer um, is the case. But Dad's now 68 and Mum 67. So um, hopefully there's, uh, there's, there's a, a long time before that ha that happens. But as far as, you know, trying to mitigate risk, I think we've done a, a pretty good job on, on how that all works anyway. No, it's great. So in terms of the day-to-day, -day, what does the business focus on now? You're obviously you're valuing, you're doing auctions, etc. What What's your main focus in the business? Oh, well, it's um, it's grown dramatically. So I'll give you the quick version. So we opened up Sydney 2012, Brisbane was 2013. Uh, we then went to Perth in 2015, but at the same time, we, um, we rebranded and relaunched um, some of the services that we offer you know we'd always describe ourselves as slattery auctions and people would say oh well you guys just do auctions auctions equals fire sale which means that i'm not getting the the highest amount for the assets that i'm selling and we went well that's not all we do it just means that we do auctions a lot we do valuations a lot but we also do other strategies um for uh I suppose realizing the assets it's not always auctions but it just happens that it happens to be that auctions is a is a really good way of doing it so slattery asset advisory came out about 2015 we opened up in central queensland in roma we're doing sort of um, irregular sales out there but they became quarterly sales now bi-monthly sales that was in sort of 2018 ish 2017 2018 um, in the midst, we almost had a joint venture happening out of the Philippines. Um, we sold uh, sold a whole fleet of trucks um, over a period of eight months. That was maybe 500-odd trucks over that eight-month period, which was a lot of fun. In 2018, 2019, we were involved in um, advising and then enacting the uh, sales strategy for a mine closure out of Tanzania. So that was, uh, that was pretty exciting. Um, there's some issues, um, you know, when dealing in jurisdictions outside of Australia, you always seem to have issues with um, with with certain government regulations. We thought that we'd mitigated all that risk, but um, the signed closure plan turned out to that got revoked, and um, and so the equipment which we've all parked up and prepared for auction <laughs> is still sitting there. So um, there's been a, a few and varied projects on the go. So. As far as what is it that we exactly do, I mean, auctions is a is a core part of what we do. We run monthly uh, monthly truck and machinery sales around the country. We uh, valuing uh, sort of two billion dollars worth of assets each year, um, and that um, number continues to grow. We're ninety one people around the country at the moment, plus the um, the uh, casual casual staff as well as the contractors which is about 400 odd people which we use and that's in our recoveries business which now goes and works for a number of the major institutions and um, finance companies so anything that's got uh, asset-backed security that then gets outsourced to us and we go along and either collect the funds or the asset depending on the instructions from the institution at the time um, yeah so there's a it's the business is growing it's um it's yeah, it continues to be a lot of fun, which is nice. 
Yeah, that's always good, isn't it? So you're also um, fairly involved in a number of other different things. I noticed you're on the board of the Association of Machinery Equipment Appraisers, which sounds pretty impressive. Um, you've obviously got a, a real niche in, the, in this particular industry. Um, in terms of business, though, how often do people need this kind of help? Where, where do you get involved? Is it only when people are in trouble or is it more around, you know, you've got assets and you need help on what to do with them? Yeah, it's a, it's a real mixture, Craig. We get involved. It, it, it's always better to be involved early, but it's um, it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah. If you get involved early, you know, we can give advice to say, well, you've got a, a fleet of trucks and a fleet of trailers. They don't always match up. You could actually look like you can sell uh, five trucks and 20-odd trailers and still operate the same level of business and then not lose the business. Um, and that's where you know the insolvency practitioners will get involved. And then, if that happens, we then deal with the with the insolvency practitioners. Um, you know, all there's you know a structured sell down. That's where we where we prefer to be. You know, involved early on so that you can um, help mitigate any further business or contagion which happens um, which happens down the line. So, as far as um, we're involved early stages, particularly on the valuation and asset advisory side. If there's, say, an M&A transaction that needs advice on what the equipment is actually worth. So we've worked on a large mining services company just recently where they're, um, they've gone in and gone on the acquisition trail. Uh, very equipment heavy, and so they just need some advice to back up the, the accounting numbers and book values of their um, of the target. And we go in and give the actual market values as well as, um, you know, the, the auction values if they do need to sell out at a, in a quick time frame. So those ones are exciting because you're definitely at the front edge and you're seeing what's happening on the on the on the deal side. Um, when you get uh, a little bit further along, if people have got the surplus asset I mentioned in the Philippines, there was a um, a refleeting transaction where they just bought a whole new trucks. People are really good, and a lot of businesses are really good at going out and buying assets, but they tend to be not as good as getting rid of their assets. Yeah. And there's a lot of value destruction, which is just needless. So um, that's where, again, you like to be there at the front end to say, yep, all right, if you are buying all this, you know, if you're going to put through a new muesli bar machine or you're going to be putting through you know, new machines to create efficiency, it's also very good to get us involved, certainly at a point where um, you go, all right, the deal's done. We need to now look at how we're going to exit from this machine because typically what happens is you buy the new machines or the new fleet, whatever it is, um, you then keep the old fleet just in case something goes wrong and you don't want to lose the operational efficiency of the existing machines. And then it sort of just becomes business as usual and you sort of forget about it and it becomes a job that you should get to. And essentially during that period, what happens is you've got these machines double insured, um, taking up twice the amount of space. Um, you've got these additional costs which um, which are just unrecognised or un, um, it's just not noticeable because they're just sitting there. It's either depreciated down to zero, you know, it, it's included in the insurance when you do the whole renewal and you don't actually see that there's a uh, an uptick in having the two machines or, you know, for a variety of reasons. But then the real value destruction, so you, the real value destruction happens when you go, well, the new machine has had a breakdown, so we'll just take this part off 
Um, and, and I always like to use the example of a ute. And we'll keep the old ute out the back just in case we need to run around. And then the battery goes flat in one of the new utes. So you go out to the old ute, you get the battery off it, then you've got the ute out there with no battery, and then all of a sudden you've got um, some spark plug issues. So you go and grab the spark plugs out of, you know, with the modern cars, it probably wouldn't happen as much, but you grab the spark. So all of a sudden you've got this ute that no longer starts and drives. It's not an easy fix. And so it just sits there because it gets in the two hard baskets. So something which was worth, say, $10,000, you sell it um, for $2,000. So you've lost 80% of the value, plus you've got all these additional costs. Yeah. Which which aren't needed and that's where um we go into you know that's just one example of one ute but you go into some of the larger companies and they've got literally fleets which are being stored and um and and held out the back and they're just depreciating they're not even under cover and you just think we go in and you know it's almost like you're walking to um a business or whatever and you see being valuers and, and auctioneers you see all these price tags just flicker up on these things and um and you go well that's that's you know, potentially a million dollars which is now decreased down to say seven hundred thousand and then they see that loss and they go well we can't sell it so they do it for another two years so you seven hundred thousand is just decreased down to three hundred fifty thousand because of the further depreciation and the um cannibalizing of the existing machinery so um yeah that's always tragic when we see that yeah and you're burning a lot of value there i mean that's just waste isn't it yeah it, it really is just value destruction um but unfortunately, it's uh, it's it's pretty hard to get people to. There's an old adage, um, which is your first loss is your best loss. Now, if yep. you've got something which you think is worth a million bucks, you sell it for nine hundred. Otherwise, you store it for um, you store it for two years, and you're going to sell it for six or seven hundred thousand. But that's that's because you you know people find it difficult, and you know we're no different. You find it difficult to um, to deal with that first loss. Yeah, absolutely. It's again, it's it's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? But it nearly is always correct. It's always the best loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typically. Yeah. So, mate, you've, you're also a bit involved with the Australian Rugby Foundation, sitting on the advisory board. Tell us a little bit about that. What do you do? This is obviously something you do more for enjoyment than anything else. Tell us about that. Oh yeah, I'm a proper rugby nut. I've um I've played every year of my life since '92, and um my wife still thinks that I'm crazy but she certainly got her head around the fact that i um hope to never give up so i'm still um i'm still playing once the uh, covid19 allows um community sport back up i'll be mm-hmm. back out on the rugby field so um i you know i just love rugby and i feel that if you've got the skills and you've um and you've got the time that it is just a way to give back to the community so i was on the board of our um of our community club for a long time which is the Melbourne Rugby Club, the rampant unicorns, Craig. Uh, if you're ever in Melbourne and you want to watch them come down, it's a great yeah. time, great sausage sizzle. Fantastic. Um, we were there. Surprisingly, when I came to Melbourne, I thought, oh, Melbourne, there's not much of a rugby scene there. You come down, you train once a week, be a rock star. It'll be, um, it'll be great. And I turned up, and the rugby quality in Melbourne is just is sensational. It really took me by surprise. Is that right? And for the rugby people who are listening, uh, Melbourne Rugby Club was the eighth largest club in the country at the time. And um, it had, I think, uh, 11 senior teams and then uh, I think it was 12 to 15 junior teams uh, in its peak. So it was um, it was quite a large club and it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And then I got off 
um, I got off the board there and I was um, I was doing a lot with uh, business and then um, I had a meeting with um, uh, the executive director of the foundation who said that he'd like to start running auctions for the foundation. I said, oh, yeah, okay, no worries. And, you know, from my experience, can the foundation do these couple of other little ideas? Um, and then he invited me to join the board and um, I, I didn't really know what I was getting involved in to the start, but I thought, well, I'll suss it out and see if I can help and and add value and it sort of fits within a passion of mine and um, I hope that I am. Um, they're probably a better better judge of that, but um, we there's five pillars to the Australian Rugby Foundation. Uh, we look to raise funds for Indigenous rugby, women's rugby, grassroots rugby, um, community rugby, as well as um, the high-performance area of rugby. And so the high-performance area, we try not to... Um, you know, we can raise funds for that and then um, help run those programs through the Rugby Australia. Um, but the, I'm, I'm really big on trying to um, help the community rugby and, and raise funds that way. You know, Australian rugby is going through a very difficult period at the moment. Um, there's a fair bit of transition and um, in the in the board as well as the C-suite. But I feel like the community of rugby is definitely just wants to see Australia be successful again and this is just a, a way that you can or well, that I can sort of contribute and help to raise funds we're rolling out programs to um, schools in New South Wales and Queensland at the moment which uh, funds um, the transport the playing kit the um, referees um, for inter-schools competitions for schools that don't play rugby so rugby is traditionally found in the in the private schools of Brisbane and Sydney, and this is trying to yeah. sort of branch it outside of those. So we're looking at the moment to running the same sort of program in Victoria, um, and that should introduce rugby um, out into the southeast, so around that sort of Endeavour Hills type area up into the northern suburbs of Melbourne, which um, which will be exciting when that happens. Probably 2021 that's going to run and that's a it's so we're looking for commitments at the moment we need to raise um so each one of those programs costs fifty thousand dollars so we're looking at raising um fifty thousand over three years um fifty thousand dollars a year over three years so one hundred fifty thousand just to get that um, school rugby project happening oh, fantastic mate it's a, certainly an interesting interesting area good on you it's great stuff before we wrap up um one your, your number one tip for business owners to be more successful Oh, that's a challenge. Um, that, that, uh, you've stumped me there, Craig. Um, number one, I mean... What's worked well for you? I suppose I love I love my job. I love my work. So for me, it's, um, it's very easy. So I find that, you know, a lot of the business owners and through the auction game, we're talking to business owners all the time, you know, they want to buy or sell. And, and, and so I like to chat to them to find out their stories, to find out what makes them tick. And... I think that being patient is probably, you know, I'm, I'm typically impatient. And so I find that I need to be patient and definitely listen a lot more than what I do. Because um, you sort of, when, you, when you're a business owner and you, you're going through the different things and you know the certain services you can offer and you sort of anticipate that of your clients and you try to, it's quite easy to anticipate incorrectly. 
And so probably taking a little bit more time to listen and find out exactly what it is. That's what's worked for me. It's obviously not going to work for everyone, but um, sure. being, being a better listener, and whether that's to internally or externally, um, that's, that's one thing that I'm sort of focusing on at the moment. Really fantastic, mate. So um, lastly, how do people contact you? If people are looking for help in this area with, with, uh, with their assets and so on, how do people contact you? Uh, the easiest way is uh, slatteryauctions.com. That's where our website, that's where we've got everything listed for sale as well as all the, the different industries that we specialise in. Um, but, um, you know, we're pretty easy to track down through the website, slatteryauctions.com. Yeah, so just use that. Okay. Fantastic, James. Thanks for joining us, mate. That's been really interesting. No dramas. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Mid-Market Matters. I hope you found this episode helpful and informative for your business. To find out more, go to midmarketmatters.com.au and to download other episodes, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.